0: I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Mission. Saturday marks the 80th anniversary of one of the ugliest executive orders in American history. President Franklin D. Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066 ten weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our West Coast became a potential combat zone. Living in that zone were more than 100,000
1: persons of Japanese ancestry. Two-thirds of them American citizens, one-third aliens.
0: The order authorized the U.S. government to detain people of Japanese descent. Again, these were mostly American citizens. And it relocated them to camps in remote areas of the country.
1: Their fishing fleets were impounded and left
0: under guard. Now they were taken to racetracks and fairgrounds where the army almost overnight had built assembly centers. They lived here. Until new pioneer communities could be completed on federally owned lands in the interior. Nearly 8,000 Japanese Americans from San Francisco and other parts of the Bay Area, including families with young children, were uprooted from their homes and businesses. Many of them had been here for generations. The expulsion of a racial demographic in San Francisco forever changed one of the city's neighborhoods. Japantown. It transformed from a thriving residential community, which once spanned 40 blocks, to a small, mostly commercial district that is still struggling to stay culturally rooted today. The Chronicle's Peter Hartlob has been fascinated by this part of our local history, and it led him to one San Francisco family, the Miyamotos.
1: I wasn't the person in the internment camp, uh, but fortunately, I benefited from their experience through who? Uh, my dad made
0: me. That's San Francisco Sheriff Paul Miyamoto. Today, I'm joined by Peter Hartlop. He's a Chronicle columnist and the co-host of the Total SF podcast. He'll share how discovering one photo from the archives led him to the sheriff. He'll also discuss what he learned about the Miyamoto's internment experience and how that trauma shaped the role Paul has in the city today. Peter Hartlop, we both host podcast for The Chronicle, but I believe this is the first time we're on the same one together. I'm so excited.
2: I am excited as well. Uh, I listen every day and uh, very honored and excited to be on Fifth and Mission today.
0: Oh, thanks so much, Peter. So... I want to talk about your latest story, and Peter, you wear a lot of different kinds of hats here at the Chronicle, including being a steward of the Chronicle archives. Tell me about how you discovered the negatives that launched this latest story, and
2: what did they show? Well, first, I want to describe the archive to you. It's um, in the basement. It's been there since essentially the 1920s when our Chronicle building was built, filled with negatives and photos that go back to the 1930s, possibly haunted. Uh, It's a really (laughs) special place. A lot of newsrooms have thrown away their history, and we have our history. Mm -hmm. So I'm down there digging for things all the time. Sometimes I'm helping someone with a project. Sometimes I'm working on my own project. And with this story, I was digging around, looking for photos from VJ Day, which was actually a riot on Market Street in San Francisco at the end of World War II. And as I'm digging around, I find... Um, basically internment photos. They're photos of Japantown on the very, very last days before a whole population was forced to get on buses and trains and, and this neighborhood was going to go extinct. And mm-hmm. the photos, I mean, they were this absolutely incredible photo essay we used one or two of them in the newspaper but the photographer went around all around the neighborhood capturing people and businesses as they're closing and as this neighborhood is in its last days
0: so the chronicle archive has dozens of photos of this journey that japanese americans took into the camps um what was it about this one photo that you came across of the Miyamoto family that caught your eye? And can you describe it for us?
2: Yeah. So it's a photo of a family of five, three boys with their parents. The parents look concerned. The mom's turning away as if like, trying to keep composure from the kids. The father is interacting with the youngest kid, and the oldest kid is smiling. He has a what looks like a military helmet on and a pea coat, And he's looking at the camera and smiling. And I found this photo haunting, you know, cause I'm thinking in this moment, this kid, it's probably a fun thing for him, but mm-hmm. um, it's a bigger journey ahead of him filled with, I know a lot of, of woe. And I'm sure um, he grew up really quick where he went next in an internment camp. And I always wondered what happened next. Well, with this negative, I could find out because this is very rare for a 1940s negative. The names of each of the children and the parents were etched on the the edge of the negative. I could could write them down and pursue it. So um, it it was very haunting, but also a special negative. When I saw it, I knew we kind of had something.
0: It is a haunting photo. I mean, the family sort of dressed to the nines. It, it does seem like this this child doesn't understand what's about to happen, and you ended up doing something with that photo, right, and it led you to eventually get connected to the family. Tell me about that
2: part of the story, yeah, so we ran the photos in two thousand and seventeen um, and we ran a lot of photos and got a lot of feedback and I even got an email from uh from the boy as a as a mm. grown man, so I knew he was alive, but I wrote back to him, and he didn't write back. It was a very short exchange. Years later, I'm working on a project. Uh, Leah Suzuki, photographer, and I kind of team up and are wondering if we can do something more with these photos in a Japantown project. And while I'm researching, um, I start going through the names. I found out that Philip Miyamoto, the boy in the, the coat has passed away. But as I'm looking at his obituary and tracking down where his relatives might be, I find out that his son Is the sheriff of San Francisco, and I was Mm. knocked off my seat.
0: Right. And that is incredible. I mean, that's incredible to. Find out the family still in San Francisco, not only still living in San Francisco, but is a part of the San Francisco community in that way. One of the things that's so striking about Executive Order 9066 is that a majority of the families that were relocated were actually born in the U.S., and many of the families had established businesses that had been in the city for multiple generations. Tell me what you learned about what happened to the Miyamoto family after that photo was taken.
2: So the Miyamoto family had been in San Francisco for about 40 years. They'd established a successful dry cleaning business. They're tight in their community. And suddenly they're on a train to Santa Anita Racetrack near Los Angeles. I was able to learn what that experience was like for the family when Paul Miyamoto, he's the son of the boy in the photo, shared his father's personal essays with me. I have an excerpt from Philip Miyamoto that I can read right now for you.
0: I'd love to hear it.
2: I remember my first train ride, April 1942, when our family was taken from our home in San Francisco to an initial internment camp near Los Angeles. This was the Santa Anita Assembly Center, which was on the grounds of a horse racing track. Our family was assigned to stay in a horse stall smelling of horse manure. We slept on mattresses stuffed with hay. To bathe, some of us used a big shower room, which was formerly used to wash racehorses. My mother cried. Hmm.
0: That is such a moving account, especially since we can connect that memory to the little boy we see in the photo. What was the Miyamoto family's journey after being incarcerated in the camps?
2: So they were in Santa Anita for months and then moved to the Heart Mountain Center in Wyoming, which was... So they were in Santa Anita for months and then moved to the Heart Mountain Relocation Center in Wyoming, which was a little more permanent. There were barracks there. It was like a giant city. Um, They were there during the peak when there were more than 10,000 people there and a little more structured. There were classrooms. Philip Miyamoto, and I I read from um, some of his memories that he had shared with his family. He remembers hunting rattlesnakes and putting them in this little makeshift uh, museum. And I think, you know, as an 8, 9, 10-year-old when this is happening, it was a little bit more of an adventure than it was for his parents, which he recognizes, you know, that they were uh, stressed and struggling through this a little more than he was.
0: You recently interviewed Philip's son, Paul, the current sheriff of San Francisco, who became the first Asian-American sheriff of a major city in California. You spoke with him at his office in City Hall, and it's striking that after all the Miyamoto's faced— they returned to San Francisco, a city that had been so inhospitable to them during the war. Did Paul say what motivated his family to return?
2: Yeah, I mean, that was the central question. And I was so lucky to find someone who was eager to tell his story. Um, when I discovered that Paul Miyamoto was the son of this boy in the photo, I immediately found videos where he's talking about his family's story and about his feelings about immigration and how it's shaped by that. I think that, you know, he understood that his parents wanted to come back to San Francisco because that was their home.
1: They came back and reestablished here, dry cleaning business, one block away from where I live right now. And I've asked both my grandmother and my dad, you know, why did you guys come back here? And it was part of it was just there was a familiarity here because they had, you know, been here. The, the family had been through the 1906 earthquake here. I think there was a familiarity to the community and Japantown, obviously, you know, there's a comfort level in having that. Um, so I don't think it was ever in their heads not to come back.
2: I relate to that. My, my grandparents immigrated from Mexico and they experienced prejudice in the 1920s and 30s, but they loved San Francisco mm-hmm. till the day they died because it was their home. And Paul Miyamoto told me that, you know, his dad, when he talked to him about the internment camps and why he came back and if he had a resentment that he felt like his dad, it was um, part of his Japanese culture that he was polite and, you know, he wasn't gonna, uh, I don't know if it's burden people with it or share that too much. He loved the city though. He came back and wanted to serve, became a lawyer Uh, worked for the state became a judge he and his wife his wife uh, ella miyamoto she's still alive she's still on the lowell alumni board right now and they came back to san francisco and uh, just gave as much as they could to the city and instilled that in their children and grandchildren too
0: more with Peter Hartlob after a quick break. We'll hear why both Phil Miyamoto and his son Paul found careers in public service even after their family experienced the trauma of being interned. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Peter, it's striking to learn how the Miyamotos have remained in San Francisco generations after being sent away to the camps. I was wondering if you could also share what Paul's father, Philip the boy in the photo, wrote about what it was like to return to
2: San Francisco. Yeah, I'd love to. We returned home to San Francisco late in 1945, and I remember VJ Day celebrations ending World War II. I remember how much help and support my parents received from old friends and neighbors upon our return. And it continues. In that initial time of turmoil, I remember any apprehensions I may have had were put to rest by my parents. They were protective of me and my brothers, just as other parents were of their children. And as the wartime months and years went by for children like me, things returned to a normalcy as we grew up, even if our surroundings were in internment camp. As children, we did participate in a small part of history.
0: You know, one thing that I hear often from, you know, just my own Japanese-American friends is that a lot of their family members that were incarcerated didn't really want to talk about this experience. And there was just this very strong desire to assimilate, to be as American as possible and here we are hearing little excerpts of Phil, you know, remembering this time in history. How did the Miyamotos preserve this history? You
2: know, I think you can credit the children and grandchildren. Um, Paul, and Paul has a brother named uh, Peter, who's a concert pianist. Uh, he's at University of Missouri teaching there, and, and I'm listening to his music as I'm writing this story. Um, I think they wanted to coax it out of them uh, uh, Paul said that his father didn't talk about it a lot, but Paul sat down and did an oral history with his grandmother. His grandmother lived to age 97. That's the mother in the photo uh, died, and she's a piece of the story that I wrote, too. And his father did write down his remembrances and share them, and, and certainly... Even if it wasn't something they were talking around at the dinner table every day, it was a shared history that was important. You go in in Paul Miyamoto's house today, it's the family home. It's been there five generations. There's memories everywhere and and things honoring what the family went through um, in this internment camp and during World War II. And certainly it's a big part of their lives.
0: It's also fascinating because Paul became the first Asian American sheriff of a major city in California, and his father, the boy in the photo, went on to become a judge. Why did the family dedicate their lives to public service? Did Paul discuss how his family's internment experience factored into his career?
2: You know, we talked about that, and and uh, he was he was very open about the fact that there are things going on in law enforcement, nationally and locally, that are things that he thinks about in relation to his family.
1: It definitely has some emotional impacts on me when I see things like the detention centers for uh You know dhs and and uh, some of the things that were going on in terms of immigration rights and reforms uh very supportive of reforms supportive of not warehousing people i feel this you know a a responsibility as elected here and somebody who's worked in public service for san francisco to try and make things right i'm affected just as the mayor and everyone else is by the current conditions and trying to balance not just you know with what we can do to help people outside but also my responsibilities as the sheriff and being a part of the criminal justice system for people that are incarcerated. So
2: it's clear that, you know, this photo from 1942, there are repercussions in our city right now from that photo. It's, it's a photo that's a snapshot in time that initially when I saw it, it haunted me. And now I realize that that's just the beginning of the journey. It's the beginning of the story and it's still going on.
0: This year marks the 80th anniversary of Executive Order 9066. It's certainly a defining part of American history, but you know, even for me as an Asian American, I didn't learn much about it as a kid. And San Francisco's Japantown, you know, this the where these photos captured this part of history. Now it's just a shell of what it used to be. It's still struggling to survive and remain culturally intact after years of redevelopment. So it it feels like sharing family stories like the Miyamoto's is a great way to preserve history, which is really our collective history. Is that what motivates you to spend all the time that you do in the Chronicle (laughs) archives?
2: Definitely. I mean this started this 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 is a little break off this story that I had come out it was it was Too good to wait, I thought. But it's part of a bigger project that we'd like to to create. Um, And there's a team of us to explain what Japantown looked like, the changes that went on. You and I both, I mean, I didn't know that much about the story, and I dig around in the archives, and we want to tell this story. And the Chronicle's in such a great place to do that because we have a development team and digital and design teams that can do things that we weren't doing 10 years ago. I've been at the Chronicle 20-plus years, and you know, I helped start the first blog at the Chronicle, and I remember thinking like there could be a time when we could – create things digitally that would supplement these wonderful things that we have in the archive. And I think we're there. So I hope people read this story and if they have their own stories about um, their families in Japantown or, or uh, in the Bay area um, that they'll share them, that this is the start of something and we can, we can build on it and tell more stories like this.
0: And connect just with our fellow community members like Paul Miyamoto, who I'm sure there's so many families out there who want to share their stories like he did i'm so glad you were able to unearth this jewel for us thank you for talking to me about it
2: thank you so much for having me on
0: peter hartlob is a culture critic and the co-host of the total sf podcast be sure to check out his story about the miyamoto family at sfchronicle.com and on the chronicle app there you will find archival photos of San Francisco Japanese residents preparing to relocate to the camps in 1942. That includes the photo of the Miyamoto family, which launched Peter's reporting. To check out more stunning photos from the Chronicle archives, visit sfchronicle.com vault. And you can follow the Chronicle archives on Instagram. It's at sfchronicle underscore vault. Thanks to King Kaufman for producing this episode and to you for listening.